0: There are warnings all around us. All the time, you're giving warnings. Some great in nature, some very small. Maybe you have uh, warnings from parents. You count one, two. What's the implied warning if they get to three? Whatever you're doing, you better stop, because once I hit three, I'm done. For me, when I was growing up, it was just first-time obedience. If they said one and it wasn't over, that was it. Maybe you get warnings from teachers. Uh, how many of you have taken uh, SAT exams or like the state exams they have? You get to the end of a section, what does it say? Stop. What, what's the warning? You Can't go back. Once you go past this page, it's over. We don't always heed warnings as well as we should. In the Midwest, there are tornadoes. Tornadoes are common. And what is the warning that goes off when there's a tornado in the area? You'll, you'll hear a loud siren go off, and what does it mean? It means you should take shelter, you should get down, you need to hide yourself, and protect yourself. But what do you see online sometimes? You see videos of people that hear the siren, they don't heed the warning, they don't go to shelter, they certainly don't go to a basement, where they say, hey, grab your camera, we're going out, we're going to find this thing, and then you get a first-hand video. Whether that ends well for that person or not, warnings are all around. Some you heed, some you don't. But in our passage today, we are going to deal with a warning. But this isn't a small warning, just a little obedience or disobedience or even of a tornado. This is one of life and death. This doesn't deal with bad grades or a punishment from parents. This deals with your soul. It's given by Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you can open up to Revelation right at the beginning of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And this warning isn't given by any person, but by Jesus himself. At the end of Revelation chapter 1, it describes this Jesus who gives this warning. Revelation one, fourteen through 16, "...and his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow." It says, his eyes were like a flame of fire. This Jesus, his eyes are like fire. His feet are like burnished bronze. His voice like the sound of many waters. It says, a sharp double-edged sword comes out of his mouth. He's the one who holds the keys of death and Hades. It's this one who says, write these things to the seven churches. So in this area, there are seven different churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I've actually gotten to visit these churches. I got to do it with a study trip, and they're on a route. It's almost like a postal route. They're next to each other, and they're in order. Ephesus would be first, and Smyrna, Pergamum, you go all the way around the route. He says, I got seven letters. He brings the seven messengers, and he sends out seven letters. And they're going to drop it off at each city. But I want you to notice something about this warning. When I said warning of life and death, you may have thought this warning is one to unbelievers. And if you're a believer here, you may have checked out saying, Well, I've already actually believed the gospel, life and death, I'm good. No, this warning which Jesus gives is not addressed to the unbeliever. The warning which Jesus gives here is addressed to a church, to believers. Ones who profess the name of Christ. In fact, it's given to a very, very healthy church. It's given to a church that has great theology. It's given to a church where people are faithful in attendance. It's given to a church who have even endured through persecution. It's given to a church who has a real hatred for sin. Not unlike our church and believers here. And that is who the warning is for. And this is the great issue Jesus has with them. There's one condemnation. He says this, they have lost their first love. In verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4, it says, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. This is a danger for everyone here this morning. Have you left your first love? In other words, have you been acting as a Christian, doing the things that a Christian would do, even obeying the commands that the Lord gives, despite no real love for Christ? You see, this isn't a small accusation by Jesus. The theme of love is something that goes all the way through the scriptures, all the way back in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This isn't a New Testament command. It goes all the way back to the law. It's repeated again in Matthew 22. That same verse is quoted. In John 14, 23-24, it says, If anyone loves me, Jesus says this, he will keep my word. It says, Whoever doesn't love me doesn't keep my word. And then Jesus When he asked Peter, what does he ask him three times? He says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Peter, do you love me? Again. See, the love for God and love for Christ is not a small thing. This is something which God cares about greatly. And in this letter to the Ephesian church, we're going to see Jesus' warning To keep love for God at the center of all your righteous living. That all you do, love of God is at the center of it. So that your faith is not merely external action. So we're going to look at the church in Ephesus. Verses 1-7 through of chapter 2. Let's learn what he says. Let's read together. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, This is what the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says, I know your deeds... And your toil and your perseverance. That you cannot bear with those who are evil, that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. You also have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember where you have fallen. And repent and do the deeds you did at first. But if not, I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Thus says the Lord. In verse 1, you see Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says. Now, what does that mean? The seven In chapter 1, it identifies Jesus as this person, the one who holds uh, the seven stars. These are seven leaders of the church in his hand. And among the seven lampstands, he's walking among them, those are the churches. So the stars are the leaders of the church. The lampstands are the seven churches, the seven churches he's writing to. And as Jesus is among them, Jesus knows them best. All is before him. He who searches hearts and minds knows them. And what does he say right away in verse 2? He says to the church, I know. I know your deeds, your toil, and your perseverance. See, Christ knows this church. You may have fooled others, but there is no fooling the Lord. He knows every heart in the Ephesian church, the good things they have done, and the bad things they have done, the things they've done genuinely and the things they're doing deceitfully. And he knows the heart and soul of everyone here today. You see, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He knows us perfectly and fully. And this is how Jesus starts, I know. And what does he see? We have three points today. The first point, point number one, is the Ephesians' success. And we're going to see this in verses 2 to 3. It says, "...I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, that you cannot bear with those who are evil, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles. And they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, but also you have not grown weary." The outward signs of this church are very good. It's a great church on the outside. What do you see? Many signs of a healthy church. First, you see sacrificial deeds. I see your deeds and your toil, toiling to the point of exhaustion, working until you cannot, not merely working until it's time for break, but working hard until you are exhausted and you need refreshed. It says persevering, persevering under a heavy load and outside persecution. They're a faithful church. They don't just go about their deeds and their service half-heartedly. They're in it all the way. Next, you see that they cannot bear with those who are evil. They cannot bear. They didn't didn't deal with carnal members, those who who would laugh at evil, who would do evil. They call sin what it is. Sin is sin. I won't laugh at that. I won't look at that. I won't engage with that. This is a church that cared about living righteously, a very good sign and a good thing. Next you see and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles. And they are not for you found them to be false. Ministers, they compare what the minister says with what the word of God says and what if they teach something that isn't false, they don't or isn't true, they don't accept it. If it's false, they put them out and expose them. As wrong. You see, this church had a rich, rich history. Okay, you want to talk about the best theologians. Who did they have? It started out likely with Aquila and Priscilla. You see them in Acts, who then they get Apollos, who's uh, eager and faithful, but he doesn't know a lot, so they help train him up. But then it gets better. This Ephesian church in this city, they get visited by Paul. Paul, on his missionary journeys, goes to the Ephesian church, the church that the book of Ephesians was written to, and he taught them about Christ. And he stayed there for three years. The man who wrote most of the New Testament epistles was there shepherding them for three years. The best of the best. They have the best preachers. Outside of Christ, it's incredible. And he leaves them, and he charges the elders to remain faithful. And then later... Timothy, Paul's disciple, came and ministered there. So you get Paul, and then you get Timothy, and it seems, it's likely, most scholars think that the Apostle John also was there, both before and maybe after uh, his exile. So you're talking Apostle, the Apostle Paul, you're talking his apprentice Timothy, talking the Apostle John. This is a church with rich doctrinal legacy, the best teachers. They know their stuff. They don't put up With false teachers. And it continues, and it says in verse 3 And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Ephesus was a great city. Uh, Libraries that are massive. Think like the worship center, except way up in the air, higher than the tower building. A massive library. I've been there, I've gotten to walk around and through it. They have amphitheaters, they are right by the water. And back then, the water is how you did all your trading. If you had access to water, you had access to money, and you had access to all kinds of resources. And it was a great city, a smart city, a rich city, uh, full of entertainment, but it was also a vile city. If you walked down the sidewalks there, you'd see signs leading to all kinds of underground places. They'd direct you all over town. If you just follow the signs in the sidewalk, down steps where all kinds of immorality would happen. It was all throughout the city. It was a great city, but it was a vile city. And if you can imagine, Christians were not liked in this city. They were made fun of, but it says in verse 3, and persecuted, you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. In a place where there's pressure all around to conform to the world and engage in immorality, they have remained and they have persevered. For the name of the Lord, for my name's sake. This is a faithful city. It reminds me of Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. From the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is a healthy church persevering under persecution. If you hop down to verse 6, it says something else. Yet this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans, you'll see later uh, in, later on in Revelation, these people were bad, they were idolatrous, and they were very sexually immoral. And the Ephesians hated them, just as God did. As God hates the unrighteous deeds of them, this church in Ephesus did too. And if you look at this church Everything you see, it screams a healthy church. It's a church you'd want to go to. If this church is in Los Angeles externally, I'd tell you to go to this church. Grace Community is great. This is another great church that you should go to. Faithful in preaching, teaching, hating sin. It's passed all the tests. They certainly dress the part. But the issue is something internal, something which is not clearly visible from the outside, a higher level of maturity and steadfastness to which they need to attain. There is one issue which Jesus holds against them. They have lost their first love. Brings us to point number two. Point number one, the Ephesians' success. Point number two, the Ephesians failure. Everything else in this letter is positive to the Ephesians except this. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. In spite of all their obedience, their external goodness, it wasn't out of love for God. Likely a failure to love Christ. They were willing to obey, but not from a pure heart, not out of love for God, but only for external righteousness. What is the great commandment? The great commandment is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. You think of a first love, and I'm sure none of you have had this, right? Nobody has fallen in love here or even seen somebody in love. Right? What what happens when people first fall in love? Right? There's giggles and there's excitement and it's the honeymoon stage some people will call it. There's strong feelings, you're always thinking about them, trying to be together, you make them smile, you're on a high, you want it to last forever. Maybe you've seen people fall in love like that. Or maybe you fell in love with a hobby, like doing something fun. I remember when I was a freshman, in college i was living in cincinnati cincinnati ohio and there were mobs of people that would just cluster all around the city you say what is it pokemon go it was huge <laughs> and they had like i don't know like these ports or something like if you were near it you could collect these like uh, creatures and the more like the more popular the people were there the bigger the group the better creatures you'd get or something And people were in love with this game. I was going to a Reds game, a baseball game, and there's less people in the stadium and more people outside directly across the street because there's a hub there and everyone circled there. And it was crazy. And people were in love with that game. They were obsessed with it. It was the new fad. How many people play Pokemon Go today? A few. And if you're still holding out, that's great. Not nearly as many. You don't see those puddles of people anymore, because it, it was a fad. They fell in love with it. Now what? It's gone. A couple people, the old timers, are still there, but it's, it's relatively gone. Not nearly as popular. You see, life moves on. The excitement and the fire starts to die. The interest wanes. You ask, was this incidental? No. That you have, it says that you have left your first love. The verb means literally to leave or to send away, canceling. Even a different usage, which I don't think is what he's using here. That word can even mean to divorce. This wasn't a passive, well, I just forgot about it. No, they've actively shut off. I'm going to do these deeds, but not out of love. I'm going to shut off my love from the Lord. Imagine a husband who says, I don't love you anymore. Maybe that's common. You've seen divorces all over. But he says, you know what? I don't love you anymore, but nothing changes. I'll still earn a living. I'll provide for us, for the whole family. I'll keep the house, the cars. I'll pay for everything. Uh, I'll still sleep in the same bed as you. Like, we'll still do that. Father, I'll father the children. I'll be a faithful father and dad. Uh, but I don't love you we'll spend time together, we'll do things together, we'll act as a married couple, but I don't love you. Everything's going to look the same, but I, I don't love you. You say, Ben, that's absurd. Yeah, but think of a church. A church who says, I don't love you to Christ. Not like I did before, but I'll still come to church I'll still give money to the church. I'll still pray at church. I'll still fellowship at church. I'll do all the things I did before, but I don't love you. That's what this church had done. That is what their issue is. Here's a church in Ephesus performing the outward actions of a healthy church, but doing it completely out of duty without any love for Christ. The sacrifices that God wants aren't simply external acts. God doesn't want you to just go through the motions. Think about that wife. Well, he provides for me. He still is faithful and cares for the children. But there's no love. God doesn't want that. He wants your heart. He wants obedience from the heart. External sacrifices, that's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees did that, and they were rebuked all throughout the Gospels. They just did things either to make themselves look good, to make themselves feel good, uh, somehow making themselves look righteous. God isn't looking for a religious people. He wants people who love and obey Christ from the heart. So I'd ask you, is this you here today? Have you forsaken your devotion to Christ? Little by little, have you begun to compromise? Is what you have with Christ just dead and empty orthodoxy, religion, beliefs? Is it loving right doctrine, being right, but not loving Christ himself? Loving maybe even coming to church, but not Christ. This can happen to anyone. Staff member, do you love your small group? Staff member, do you love Christ, or do you love doctrine and the things about Christ and even being a leader? Do you love? Do you remember a time when you loved Jesus more than you love him now? If you have, to some level, you've forsaken your first love. So what is the solution which Jesus gives to this Ephesian church, who has all the external actions, but isn't loving Christ? This brings us to point number three, the Ephesians' hope. What is the solution? What does Jesus instruct them to do? Verse five, it says this, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds you did at first. First thing he says, therefore, remember. Remember the good times when the gospel of Christ first saved you and you were freed from your sins. Remember the joy that you experienced. Remember the change that's produced in your heart. And The verb tense says it's an ongoing thing. Keep on remembering. Keep repeating the truth about the cross to yourself until you begin to experience delight and love for the Savior once again. You keep on rehearsing that. If you have journals when you were first saved and you wrote it down, go revisit them. Remember the thoughts, remember the feelings you had when you first came to know Christ. Go back there when the forgiveness of sins was so sweet. If you track prayers and you write down prayer requests, and then you can go back and you have them and you can see how the Lord has answered them, go back and visit those. Remember the faithfulness of God to continue to love you. Remember that. Let that help you delight and love him. If you have others in your life who knew you before you were saved or early on when you were saved and have seen the change in your life and can testify to you of the own change that you yourself are struggling to see and the the love of what God has done that you yourself aren't quite seeing, go ask them and have them tell you. Talk about it with them find a way to rehearse what God has done. But whatever it takes, the solution says, Jesus says, is therefore, remember. You must keep on remembering. Yes, looking forward, but also looking back at all that God has done. And then Jesus says this, and repent. To make a U-turn, you're going one direction, you turn and you go the other. You acknowledge you're wrong, that you've been doing just the external acts for God. You acknowledge that to Him. You ask Him for grace, and you come back quickly to serve Him with love. More than an emotion, though, it says you remember, you repent, and you do the deeds you did at first. It's more than an emotion, but it results in good deeds which were done at first, what are those good deeds? It doesn't say. But if you're a believer, do you remember when you were first saved from your sin? When you were first saved from your sin and you had all that zeal and all that energy and all that passion, I need to serve the Lord. I need to get involved in the church. I need to find a way to serve. Uh, I need I need to tell others about the message. When you had that passion, I need to be in the Bible. I need to pray and you delighted and loved to do that because God had freed you from your sins. He says, remember, and do those deeds you did at first. Go back to that. Bible reading, prayer, loving others, the church, Christian joy, fellowship, service, witnessing, whatever it is, return to those deeds. Do those deeds you did at first. And let them help ignite your love again for Christ. But then here's the warning. The warning which Jesus gives is now found at the end of verse 5. But if not, I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. He says, the stakes are high. I'll remove your lampstand. Remember, the lampstand is the church. He's literally talking, I will remove the church completely disobedience will bring dire consequences. If they continue to willfully disobey, Jesus will come to visit them. And if you'll notice, maybe you haven't, but I've been there, there is no church in what Ephesus was there today. It's just ruins. Not only is the church gone, the city's gone. It's gone. No longer a city, just ruins. Sinners cannot lose their salvation, but Jesus can remove the church, and at some point he did. The lampstand can be removed. So we who are believers, don't leave your first love. Did some walk away? Probably. Don't be like that. Don't leave your first love. Keep your first love. Keep fixing your eyes on Christ. Remember, repent, do the deeds you did at first Fall in love with Christ again, just as you did at the first. And to the unbeliever, God's judgment to the believers here is severe for a lack of love. Believers who loved him rightly at first, who are saved, who are part of the church, and he's angry at them because they have left their first love. He is much, much more angrier at you if you have never loved him and you've refused him all your days. And the description you've seen the first time when he gives his word in verses 14, 15, and 16, he talks about his white wool, burnished bronze feet, uh, voice like a sound of many waters, and his hand holding the stars, sword coming out of his mouth, his face was like the sun. It describes him as that before he speaks this warning. But the warning's not like that the second time. The second time, he looks very similar. But in chapter 19, verses 11 through 19, he comes back described the same, but this time it's not in word, in warning. It's in judgment. Then I saw heaven open. This is the end of time. And behold, a white horse, and he who sits on it, is called faithful and true. The same term you had for him in Revelation 1. And in righteousness he judges and wages war his eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, having a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And being clothed with a garment dipped in blood, his name is also called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God the Almighty. And he is on his garment and his thigh written a name, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun and cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of strong men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both men free and slaves, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war with him who sits on the horse and with his armies. The warning which Jesus gives here is not the warning you get the second time. When he comes back the second time, it's the same Jesus, but he's coming in judgment and war. But that Jesus now says you can run from the wrath of God today and be free of the wrath of God today, and you can find his love. Why do we love? Because he first loved us. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you trust in Christ and what he has done, you can find the love of God today. If you give your love to God and stop loving the things of the world, the pride of yourself and your own self-righteousness, but love God and Christ today, ask for forgiveness, you can be saved. But make no mistake, if God is angry at his church for losing their first love, he is angry at you if you have never loved him at all. He continues in verse 6, yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds, the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He comes back to it again. You're doing many good outward things, but you don't love me. You're still doing many good outward things. He's not saying stop doing those outward things. Those outward things, hating sin and the immorality there are still good things. Keep doing those, but do those out of love for Christ. Out of a heart for God. We get to the end in verse 7. He who has an ear. Do you have ears? Do Do you have an ear? He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The promise is this. Love God, receive eternal Life. Trust in the Son, receive entrance to heaven. Stop trying to earn your salvation, put it on external actions, and come to Christ. What Christ has offered is not external in nature. It's internal, that you'd love Christ, not that you do enough things to come into favor with Him. So you think, how does this apply today? We've talked about it a lot, but we are not unlike the Ephesian church. Grace community is not a lot unlike the Ephesian church in that we have strong doctrine, we have righteousness, we hatred for sin, we punish sin, but I have a question. What could destroy a church that outwardly does all the things they're supposed to do? What could destroy a church? What could destroy 180? What could destroy your Bible study? Your small group is a lack of love. If you leave the love you had for Christ. So that all those outward things are just externals. They aren't from a love of Christ. But to please him, you do obey in all those outward ways, but you do it out of love for Christ. So what's the command for you? You keep God at the center of your life. In your service at church, at youth group, you keep delighting in God. In your habits of holiness... If you're faithful to read the Bible and spend time in prayer and witness, you remember why you do those things. You don't do it out of habit. It's good to form that habit. But you don't do that out of so people think you're a Christian. You do that because Christ has saved you and you love Christ. You think upon the Savior. And if your heart is struggling and you're here that I know I loved Christ much at one point in my life, And I don't love him as much today. It starts with the truth. You immerse yourself in the truth. You remember. You read the scriptures of what Christ has done. You continue to feed that desire until it starts to give you conviction and a desire. Or you feed the truth until it starts to give you a desire and then your actions will follow. Your heart will delight in God once again. It shouldn't drive you to despair if you don't have love like you did. Jesus... Was not a, Jesus did not offer condemnation to this group. He offered a warning that if your heart is struggling and you don't love Christ as you should, as you did, that you would come back and you would do it now. It doesn't drive you to despair, but to come back. Knowledge is imperfect. Pursue it, but in the reality of love, the greatest of attributes. And as you think, how can I be most like Christ? You love like Christ. How can I be like Christ? You love like Christ, who loved God with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his mind, and never waned, never wavered, who always loved God with all his heart, soul, and mind. So my prayer today is that the Lord would help us continue to love him, you and I alike. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your word. Uh, we're thankful for what Christ has done. Uh, We ask that in our own hearts, we would not grow weary of loving you. We'd not become discouraged. We would not lose our first love, but that today you would kindle in our hearts a love for you as we had at the first. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.